Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive Home and Auto Policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hear my words and bear witness to my vow. Night gathers and now my watch begins. It shall not end until my death. I shall take no wife. Hold no lands, father no children. I shall wear no crowns and win no glory. I shall live and die at my post. I am the sword in the darkness. I am the watcher on the walls. I am the shield that guards the realm of men. I pledge my life and honor to the night's watch. For this night, and all the nights to come. Hello and welcome to Still Watching Game of Thrones. I'm Vanity Fair Senior Writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. We are here today to talk about Season 8, Episode 2 of Game of Thrones, titled A Night of the Seven Kingdoms, written by Brian Cogman and directed by David Nutter. If you were just joining us, we spent the like last part of the off-season talking about our favorite episodes of Game of Thrones. And I got to say, if you're going to do it again, this episode would probably land in that mix for me. I really, really loved it. Richard, what did you think of this episode of Game of Thrones? Uh, I think barring one slightly major misstep, I really liked it a lot too. Excellent. We will talk about that. Um, we should say now that we're in the actual season, um, something that we weren't able to do before the season started because we were pre-recording, our schedule was all over the place. But now that we're back to a week-to-week schedule, if you guys want to email us, still watching pod at gmail.com and we're not talking about Podrick Payne, so still watching pod at gmail.com, you can email us, uh, your thoughts on, uh, Game of Thrones, your questions that you want us to answer, all that sort of thing. We'll promise to try to get to some of those, um, in the episode we're gonna discuss the episode more broadly um and then get into an interview that we have with writer and co-executive producer brian cogman his third time on this show because he's just the best (laughs) he's our amy sedaris or something like (laughs) our letterman or something i just i just really think he's the greatest so we're so glad to have him back um 
But first, we wanted to hand out a few awards for the episode. Usually, I do a 15-word recap. Um, I don't know that it's super necessary for these episodes that we're all watching together. But uh, for this one, I just came up with, like, people in rooms talking. I think that really... That's pretty, pretty good. Yeah. I guess you could say, like, people in rooms, courtyards, crypts, ramparts talking. So, yeah, there we go. Um, and then we wanted to hand out an obvious MVP. Richard, who's your obvious MVP for this episode? Well, I think I might, I think I did this last week too, but I still got to go with Bran. I think this whole like omniscience, you know, like almost self-sacrificing, but like without any sort of emotion thing, like really puts him in a position of power uh, above all else at Winterfell at the moment. I love that. All right. I have some, I have some interesting, nope. Uh, that's my own opinion. Maybe interesting brand thoughts to talk about. Um, my obvious MVPs for this episode is tie between Gwendolyn Christie and Nicolette Coaster Waldo, uh, who play Brand of Tarth and Jamie Lannister, respectively. Uh, these are two characters that I love together so much, and the plot has sort of kept them apart for seasons and seasons and seasons. Having them back together, I feel like you can tell that the actors that their favorite stuff to do is this stuff as well. Honestly, I think you see them alive in a way that you don't see them alive elsewhere. So um, there's that sneaky MVP of the episode, Richard, who do you have? Well, you said when you were giving out the email address that we're not, we don't, we're not referring to Podrick Payne. So it made me change <laughs> my sneaky MVP to Podrick Payne because look at him looking good, fighting good as his surrogate parents of a sort, Jamie and Brienne, watch on in, you know, respectful admiration. I I think that Pod showed up quite well in this episode. And singing like a little champ at the oh, end. Of course, yes, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, when he, it was so funny when that scene started, and I was like, I didn't know that there was going to be a song in this episode, but it start, when it starts, the scene starts with like, shall we have a song? I was like, someone's going to sing. Um, And then... Like before they even went through the list, I like got a little misty eyed because I was like, Oh my god, is it gonna be pod? Um, and it was, and he was Daniel Portman just sounded so beautiful. My sneaky MVP is Ghost, because even though he's in this episode, you would be forgiven if you missed him in this episode. He's just sort of standing there, uh, without moving really, it seemed like, in this sort of rampart scene. Um between the Night's Watch boys, Sam and Ed and John. Uh, he's just sort of there. And that, you know, people were really missing him last week's episode. He didn't like go bounding out into the courtyard to greet John when he returned. So they were like, uh, you want some ghosts? Here's some ghosts. He's here. We swear. Uh, and he is there. So we, we get, we get credit for ghosts being there. Well, true to his name, I did not see him. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right, we're going to do uh, a quote or favorite quote from the episode. This is a funny one because like last week, I feel like there was an embarrassment of riches because it was a very like quippy episode. This week wasn't very quippy. Uh, it was more sincere. And those are harder quotes to sort of pluck out because at this point, we kind of like to, uh, you know, often like to pick something kind of silly. Um, but I have to go. With my heart here and say, Arise, Serbian, a knight of the seven kingdoms is like the quote of the episode. Richard, do you have anything? Well, I was going to try to do Tormund Giant's Bay and talking about sucking from giant teats or whatever. But <laughs> right, I, right. I didn't want to put myself or you or the audience through that. So yeah, I'm going to agree. I mean, that's Arise, you know, a knight is, is the, the quote of the episode and, and the emotional crux of the episode. Yeah. Um, then we want to hand out really quickly a, a little best dress award. 
I, I can't pick anyone other than Sansa Stark, who is wearing like strips of leather riveted to themselves and each other as a sort of like breastplate, austere black lady of Winterfell. Don't fuck with me, Daenerys dress. Uh, what do you, what do you pick? Best dress of this episode? Well, I, you know, I think that ever, all the ladies, well, not all, but almost all are doing sort of variations on a theme. And I don't know, for whatever reason, Miss Sandy's, uh, particular, like, winter look struck out to me, or, or stuck out to me uh, last night. Um, I don't know, there was just something really, um, I, li- I like the, uh, the warm weather people in cold weather climate and see how they adapt, and they're adapting well. It's a very, her look is a very fashion forward look because mm-hmm. you would think if you were in the snow all the time, you would choose just like function, function, function. But her like beautiful, like warm looking winter dress has this like big hole cut out of the back. Not like, not all the way through to her skin, but like the warm part has a big hole in it. And I'm like, for me, I would want to have like, you know, my shoulder blades warmer, but you know, my Sandy's like, make it fashion. Make it fashion. Make these racist northerners know how beautiful I look. So, yeah. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, the New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Uh, and then we do a ship of the episode, two characters that we are rooting or, or any other objects that we are rooting for, uh, to be together. I usually pick something silly for this, but I gotta go once again with sincerity and pick Jamie and Brian, who are my, like, ultimate, ultimate ship of the entire series. Richard, who, which two crazy kids or things are you rooting for to get together? I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go half what you went. I, I'm gonna say Brienne, but I'm not gonna ship her with like any fate other than the inevitable death she's gonna suffer next week, I think. <laughs> yeah, um, yes. This is something we should talk about, uh, more broadly as we talk about this episode, because this is a, you know, being touted as like a calm before the storm, theatrical people talking in rooms, character based episode, and it is all of those things. And I think it is in, in my like softest heart, uh, imaginings. I imagine that this is uh, the showrunners Weiss and Benioff giving Brian Cogman one last platform to do what he does best, which is these people talking in rooms episodes. But then you have to like put on your I podcast about the series hat and and also examine it from the angle of uh, they're trying really hard to make us care about these characters before they kill them all brutally uh, mm-hmm. next week, which is an unavoidable thought to have, I think. And like my my death pool, I don't know who dies next week. I have some ideas. Um, but, you know, my death pool definitely shifted based on who we got to spend the most time with in this episode and who had the tenderest sort of, you know, 
the person who had the tenderest stuff in this episode, be worried about them perhaps next week. I, I don't know about Jamie and Brienne, but I would not fault anyone for putting them at like the very top of their list. Well, let's one, one of them, right? Yeah, let's run, let's run through it. So, so either Jamie or Brienne, I would say Brienne. Um, Grey Worm for sure, right? Like the way that they were, I feel like they were indicating that. Like when I'm I would back, say, I'm gonna take I would say to, 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 to Noth, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I would say Grey Worm or Sandy, like one of them, right? You know what I mean? You don't get mm-hmm. to say, you don't get to like, um, paraphrase. There's a place for us, uh, and yeah, survive. Exactly. Totally. And survive. Oh my god, that's exactly what it was. <laughs> it's like a little, t- like very, very like embedded tease for Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. <laughs> Um, Theon and Sansa. I would say Theon, right? Um, yeah, that's gonna happen. Yeah, I mean that that feels to me the most inevitable end of this episode is that Theon Greyjoy has come home to Winterfell to die, uh, protecting Bran, like reuniting with Sansa, all of that. Uh, Jorah Mormont's high on my list. He got a Valyrian steel sword. Mm-hmm, he, mm-hmm. you know, he he did all the things. He's gets to go. Um, Beric is probably not long for this world again. Uh, Beric and or the Hound, um, and and then maybe Gendry, um, but I don't like I don't I think I feel like Game of Thrones is not going to do this thing where like these characters like the horror movie thing of these characters had sex now one of them's going to die I feel like it's not going to do that but I could be wrong but um, yeah that yeah that feels less like a <clears throat> less like they were indicating toward a, a inevitable death than than the, some other scenes I think yeah. But, and then Pod. <laughs> Pod's really on my list too, I gotta say. Pod and, <sighs> Pod and Dollar said. Yeah, Pod and Dollar said. Um, Ed, Ed, who is like Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, is crazy that he's still alive. Also Tormund, also Davos. Basically all your faves. Basically my, my philosophy is this, or my theory is this. <clears throat> what we're gonna see next week is Game of Thrones, and once again, I don't know, I don't know, this is not spoilery. Game of Thrones is gonna kneecap the B string of its cast. They've got a whole roster of B-level characters that we care a good deal about. And they can take them all or almost all out next week and still have plenty of cast to make it through to the end of the season. Um, and then they're going to drop at least one A-strength player. And I think that's the uh, great joy. So. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, like the, the episode just, like beat for beat reminded me so much of like the final episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, like the season seven series finale, like these conversations at night before the big scary thing happens, you know, it just, the the sense of like everyone's together kind of reflecting like it, 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 and and I'm not, I'm, I'm making a very favorable comparison. Um, I think that's a great episode, but then you think about maybe, maybe it's the episode before, I don't remember how the, the season, the end of Buffy was structured. Maybe it was two episodes, but regardless, what happened next was, I mean, spoiler alert for something that happened 15 years ago, but, uh, you know, a B player died in Anya, but it still really felt like Ooh, it hurt. It, oh God, I hate that death. I mean, I yeah. understand why they did it. And then an A player died in Spike and it really, you know, as a kind of big self sacrifice. So, um, even though they brought him back in Angel or whatever, but, um, you know, so I feel like if we're kind of following that Buffy model, I think you're absolutely right that like, you know, maybe it won't just be one Anya, it'll be several because there are more characters to work with, but like next episode has to give us at least one major character death. And yeah, Theon seems right primed for that. So you're saying that, um, 
this episode was the equivalent of like Anya and, and Andrew chair racing. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So I, yeah, I saw your tweet last night and you're like, Anya dies in a hallway in this, right? And I was like, yeah. yep, 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 yep. <laughs> um, yeah. So, okay. But that's, that's next week. And that's not really, I guess, you know, the point, the point of this is if all these people are going to die tomorrow, this is a beautiful, like, love letter farewell to them. And I think in that, uh, in that respect, it works. So well, I was, I had high hopes for this because I like Brian's episodes historically. And I'm not just saying that because he's on this podcast. Um, I like them historically. I knew that this was a calm before the storm episode. I knew it was going to be a lot of people talking rooms, which is like extremely my shit. And so, um, I like my expectations were probably a little too high going into this episode. And then I got to say for me, this episode didn't let me down. Um, the Jamie and Brian stuff. And, and like, it's not just the Jamie and Brian stuff. It's like the other people who are in that room as well. The, the witnesses of everything that happened there mm-hmm. felt like a tremendously earned payoff. When I was writing about the Jamie and Brian relationship yesterday for VF.com, um, I was like, let me look up the date of their first episode together um, like when did that air? How long have I been like thinking about this? And maybe I wasn't thinking about it from their very first episode when like she shows up and he's like, is that even a woman or whatever? Like, uh, but it was May 2012. So it's like seven years we've been with this character, these characters, which is crazy to think about. Crazy to think about how much has changed in our world and like for us personally, like since this narrative started, but to see it come to like such a, really emotional and like honestly it felt so earned to me the david brian stuff felt super earned to me and honestly actually the theon and sansa stuff felt really earned to me so um you know and on all these little grace notes all these little callbacks and like a scene would start and like like the davos and gilly thing with that little girl and like it started and i was like oh no it's a shireen callback oh my god so like i don't know i was like i was the definition of that like that gif of that kid at some sporting event i don't know what it is where he's just like basically crying and going like oh my god that was me in this episode and i feel like i don't usually get that with tv shows because i am constantly like trying to analyze and think and critically and i don't let myself get emotionally invested uh as as much anymore you know because it's like my job to sort of not be emotionally invested and especially in thrones i've had so much trouble being emotionally invested of late because everything felt like it was on fast forward so to have this pause meant a good deal to me as a way to say goodbye to a lot of uh characters and themes that are important to me richard do you want to talk to me about what you liked on this episode before we hit that thing that you thought was a little um uh rougher maybe <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, hats off to not only the people who make the show, Weiss and Benioff, your best friend, Brian Cogman, uh, <laughs> but also HBO in a way, because it's like, I mean, I guess they were going to let these people end the show however they wanted in some senses. But like, this is now two episodes into a highly anticipated final season where like, stuff has happened, sure, but like, it hasn't been terribly violent. There haven't been big action scenes. I mean, that's over two hours of, co- almost over two hours of content where like, of a only six episode season. And I, I think it's, you know, really respectable that they're letting them take their time, like build up to this. I know next week is going to be this insane 50 days of night shoots, you know, battle, right, right. you know, Royale, and that's going to be, you know, the payoff. But, um, 
you know, I saw someone on Twitter last night compare this, like they were like, so this really is all just going to like, it feels so far like this final season might just be one long episode that's just structured and like acts, which I think is an interesting way to think about things. Mm. Um, so yeah, I like all that. I think the conversation was good. I think that, you know, Game of Thrones can sometimes be a little too cute or on the nose when it tries to have this kind of sense of esprit de corps or bonhomie or sort of reminding us of who relates to who and how. But I think they, they got the emotional tenor just right in so many crucial scenes um, that, yeah, it was this kind of like, what a long, strange trip it's been, you know, like looking back and oh, how, how improbable that all these characters would be here. Uh, together, but then they had the characters comment on that, like Tyrion saying, "I wish you know our f- father was here so we <laughs> could see that his two sons are going to die protecting Winterfell tomorrow." Um, so all that was great. I thought, you know, um, uh, the, the thing that clanged to me, yeah, um, no, actually, no pun intended. Now that I think about it, it w- was the Gendry and Arya thing. Um, I I felt, you know, I don't want to deny a character like Arya uh, a sort of sexual you know, life uh, sort of at that aspect to her, to her being. But I just didn't really think that given all that Arya has been through, we had sort of seen her to that point, you know, like I, I just saw a, com- a couple of people reacting to the show last night who were just like, you know, much in the same way, the show hasn't quite really processed Sansa's rape and like what that, you know, the effects of that. Um, I think they've tried to do that with her. They haven't really had Arya work through like, I mean, she was abused, but in, in, in many senses by, you know, many different people. And, um, I, I don't know that her sort of seducing Gendry to have like one, you know, roll in the hay before they all meet their maker. Like, I, I don't know that that, that felt like a big leap for that character in a way that I didn't quite track. It's so interesting because I think what makes that all work for me is that last shot when they're montaging over pod singing and you see Arya in bed with Gendry and she's mm-hmm. not, or, or in the like bales of hay with Gendry or whatever. And she's not like, yeah, this was great. It was very like end of the graduate for me. You know what I mean? Where it's just sure. sort of like, I made that choice. Now what? Or, you know, what is, what is maybe that didn't do exactly what I was expecting it would do in this like last night on earth thing. My impression of Arya and, and of a lot of characters is they, I have, I have two different working theories about what it means in this season to return to Winterfell for all the members of the Stark family. And I include John and Theon in that it's about returning to like their Starkish identity. Like I feel like you see as they're all around each other, even Bran, uh, to a certain extent, I think you see them sort of relaxing back into their own humanity. They had to like, they went through all this crazy shit, all this abuse, all these awful things happened to them. And they threw up all these walls because of course they have to, um, in order to survive. And I include Sansa in this, um, obviously. And, and then they're back in Winterfell and you start to see those walls come down as they're around the people that they do inherently trust, you know? And so I feel like what I think they're going for, and, and sometimes it works for me and sometimes it doesn't, with Arya is that she, like, became this inhuman, like, Terminator robot killing machine, which is just not fun or compelling to watch on TV, I think. Um, and it's slowly sort of reheating her humanity as she's back in Winterfell as she's back around her friends. And she's still a little bit like, what are your strange human ways? You know what I mean? Like, I don't understand you earthlings about it. Um, but that she's like working on it 
And that was sort of my interpretation of this is like, she's like, oh, this is what humans do. I'm going to do it. You know what I mean? And like, that's sort of how I felt about it. Um, but I didn't feel like it was a, like an ordinary, let's just have a roll in the hay, um, interaction between two characters. Does that, does that distinction make sense? No, it does make sense. And I think, you know, Arya has since the first season always been a character who, is eager for the next thing for the, for the, the next challenge or the next kind of, I guess, milestone on the way to adulthood. You know, she always kind of, she, she, she resented being young and, and, and being a girl, I guess, too, also, which is, um, part of, part of the equation for her. Um, so yeah, I, I can, I can see it from a lot of different angles where it, it totally works. And, you know, I think there is definitely part of me that's just like, oh, I've seen her since she was a little kid. Like, I don't want, you know, like, it's very strange to have that sort of, my conception of this character and in some senses that actress like be sort of, you know, like, Oh, well she grew up, you know, whatever. Um, I, you know, I don't want to be like all like, you know, sex shamey or, or whatever about it. it. And I'm not even really coming at it from that place. It's more that just, I don't know. It just felt sort of abrupt for her in a way, but I guess that character has always done things a bit, um, you know, rashly. And, and, you know, I, she, I don't know if that it was rash exactly. I mean, she, she's known him for a long time, like whatever, like, I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm sort of tying myself up in knots about it for, <laughs> For no reason. Well, well, I mean, I will say I wrote about this. I wrote about it a bit last night. The show has always had this slightly weird challenge, which is the fact that, like, not only did they, uh, you know, age up the actor, the characters when they cast them, like all the all the kid characters were aged up when they did the show, right? So in the books, you know, like. Arya and Sansa, John, and all the Lannister kids, and Daenerys, are all like several years younger than their uh, actor counterparts were on the screen. And that saved us a lot of trauma from watching like tiny, tiny people, not to mention like bad kid actors, uh, execute certain things, right? Um, but at the same time, then there were occasional gaps in the adaptation. And I'm thinking specifically of like, let's say someone like Sansa. Sansa is a character that I, always liked and liked even more this last time we went through the season. I really, really warmed to her. And I thought Sophie Turner, incidentally, was great in this episode. But um, but that character is so much younger in the books. And so when you have early season Sansa, who's like so naive and so petulant, like she, when, when that character is so much younger, you're like, okay, or Rob, like Rob's so much younger. So he sleeps with to Lisa and brings about the red wedding, but he's like a teen. So you're like, okay, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's a little different. And so they've always had this weird gap of that. And then like, then, then as the show progresses, these, these kid actors have grown up. And so like, no matter how time is passing on the show, um, you can't deny that these actors like, you know, bodies not to put it too crude a point on it are like older, you know what I mean? And so like, Arya is still a kid on the page. She's still like, uh, you know, 11 or something like that. I think George R. R. Martin said, but like, you know, Maisie Williams is in her twenties. So, um, so with Arya, that's a long way around to say that Arya, like she has one moment in season three, I think it is season two, maybe, um, where she's like, uh, you know, basically I fucking Gendry. This is a famous shot, uh, at least for those of us who make Game of Thrones gifts of like, the, you know, poor Joe Dempsey. I think when he was talking to me on the podcast, he was like, yeah, the makeup lady's like, use some soot to give me some abs uh, or whatever. But like the camera pans up him as like Arya has like some hardcore female gaze moment when she's like quite young. And then they just like press pause on that. <laughs> For years, like you got none of that from Arya until Gendry came back. And that, 
feels unrealistic. And then like with Sansa, it's, you know, it's a trickier territory. It's hard to say. Like she went from having a crush on Gay Loris to starting to understand her sexual power over Littlefinger. And then this thing with Ramsay happened that I'm just like, I don't really even want to talk about Sansa and her sexual identity after that. You know what I mean? Like it's just, she can do that at her own pace and I am not having any, any opinions about that, you know? So like, um, does that mean, I mean, that's a long ramble, but I just sort of feel like there's been, uh, I agree, especially with like the Stark girls, there's been this weird gap between, um, the kids on the page and the actual young women they are. And I was actually glad this existed because I was afraid that like, you know, like John gets multiple girlfriends and his sisters get like, nothing fun to do like it's you know and maybe that's in some ways what i'm reacting to almost subconsciously it's like it's so fucking rare on this show for a woman to have a positive sexual experience um that like i'm like whoa weird you know that's out of that's out of tune you know and it's like well maybe it shouldn't be (laughs) you know like this is uh that's a, a major way that this show has been seriously lopsided since the beginning um so so yeah, I don't know. I guess I my my feelings about that scene were, were I was surprised that they kind of went there uh in the old uh, Degrassi uh points. but um you know, I, I think it's I think it's good in the end that um maybe we have a sort of more grown-up understanding of of Arya because, you know, I think both the character and Maisie Williams's wonderful performance have earned that. Someone uh pointed out and I thought that was really I kind of missed the whole kickback on Twitter about this cuz I was like working. I I just saw like People were saying that people were upset that Arya had sex. And I know that if they were, it was probably not for the same reasons you just articulated, which were very nuanced. I think a lot of people, I don't know if you saw that Google search spike, but a lot of people Googled like, how old is Maisie Williams sort of thing? Like, Mm -hmm. um, right when the episode aired, because they're like, I'm sorry, what? Because she, you know, Maisie Williams is like a diminutive person. So she just like looks younger than she is. We grew up with her, blah, blah, blah. But that's, that in and of itself is, I think a good boundary to push. It's like, yeah, your, <laughs> your daughters grow up to be sexual beings. Get used to it sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, I, I think it's right and okay to be unsettled a bit by that scene for whatever reason. I don't think you, to me, it never, it didn't read as, um, just holy, like, fuck yeah, Arya's getting her rocks off. Cause there's just like something, there's just something else. Yeah, you know, especially their courtship involves like her throwing daggers. You know, there's always just something like off with, with Arya. Yeah. That's the sort of thing, you know. So many of her rites of passage have been necessitated or sort of created by violence or, you know, or, or in reaction to violence or something, you know, impending death or whatever. Like she's not been able, not, I mean, not like, not like anybody on the show really has been able to, but like, you know, John got a sort of peaceful romp in a, you know, sexy water cave or whatever. Like, right. And Arya gets it, like, she's like, okay, I'm going to lose my virginity, like, right before, you know, the army of the undead comes crashing through the walls of my family home. Um, so yeah, the circumstances for her have always been pretty dire. Yeah, it really bothered me when people are like, uh, she didn't have time in those years to like have a crush. I was like, John fought many battles, came back from the dead and still like, still nailed two eligible ladies. So, <laughs> still so, figured so, out like, what Conolingus was like, <laughs> while journeying. On the fly. Like, yeah. Of the wall, you know? <laughs> it's true. Um, so anyway, yeah, I, I, um, I think it's a good thing to have a conversation about, uh, uh someone I know on Twitter and I can't remember who it was did mention that she thought that there was a think piece somewhere in this idea that we had like no issue with Arya like genociding an entire house 
Mm -hmm. uh last season or killing all these people like that's something that just sort of but like the when she becomes this like sexual being that's when there's like a major pushback in terms of like she's so young she's that's not your argument i know but just like a general argument of like but she's just a kid what is this um you know this idea of like this dichotomy of sex and violence and what feels okay and what doesn't and especially what feels okay for women to do and what doesn't well know? yeah i mean if you if we want to unpack you know uh, our culture's really fraught uh relationship with concepts of violence and sex i mean we we could do that but it's just going <laughs> to we're going <laughs> to People are going to be listening to this for about the next six days. It's going to need a minute. Um, all right. Let's talk about, let's talk about this, uh, Jamie and Brian, or maybe more specifically, Brian, uh, Jamie's like, um, Jamie arrives at Winterfell, goes on trial basically briefly, uh, has a chat with Bran, has a chat with his brother. Um, and then, you know, has this, you know, empty chairs and empty tables or whatever you want to call it. Um, moment with with all these fellas and brand before they go to war uh like i don't know this this felt like such an important and, and you know i felt like thoughtful pause for this character what did you think of of jamie like coming home to winterfell or coming back to Winterfell? i, I thought it was good I, I think it was a great um showcase for coster waldo like you know to do some you know a, a sort of quieter take on the character or, or sort of more like forlorn and weary. Um, then I guess we're used to seeing at least from early season, um, uh, Jamie, um, you know, I thought also the conversation between him and Tyrion, and I know that Cersei's still looming in the South, you know, I know that she's still present, but in some senses, but like just the two of them sitting there and like this whole house Lannister and all of its sort of mighty trappings. And, you know, it's all, it's been decimated by, well, dragons. Yes. But like also, um, just greed and hubris and all this stuff. And just to, to have this whole thing just reduced to these two, like, weary middle-aged guys sitting in a room that, you know, in a house that's not theirs. Like, I thought that was, like, a pretty, um, no matter what happens to Jamie or Tyrion in the next few episodes, like, a pretty, um, I don't know, poignant end to the Lannister narrative in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, something that has, you know, and I, and I, and I wrote about this a bit last night, but like something that I've thought about for a long time is the fact that Jamie's narrative and Bran's narrative were really impacted by the fact that the show decided to not do Lady Stoneheart. The decision to not do Lady Stoneheart, which is the resurrection of Callan Stark, not only, um, deprived all of us of Michelle Fairley doing a zombie thing <laughs> for several seasons, which is fine. Whatever. I get it. Um, but. Jamie and Brienne's story is so tied to hers in the book, you know, because they swore this vow to Catelyn and then just sort of their, their plot after they both leave King's Landing is like has them in the Riverlands and tied to Catelyn. And there's this like big Someone lady eats Brienne's face or something. Is that, is that like a thing that happens? Some person attacks her outside of a pub or something. I don't remember, but already in. Yeah. Like, there's some biting and stuff like that yeah. that happens generally, but like, um, but when you remove Lady Stoneheart from that, then you don't have anything really substantive for Jamie Brand to do in the Riverlands. And so they tried to like come up with some other things for them to do. So like they sent uh Brienne up north and so she hung around there for a while and she got some things to do. She got to kill Stannis, like that happened, you know, but like mostly she's just been like stalwart and by Sansa's side for she's been she's been like 
I will say like seasons two through four, Brienne becomes like a protagonist, her own character, an A-lister. And then she got slotted back into a sidekick role in a way um, that was hard at times for me to watch. I'm like, they don't have a thing for a brand to do. So, you know, as Gwendolyn put it at a Comic-Con panel, when you're like, she just sat and stared at a candle in a window for several months. Like that's something that they didn't know what to do with brand. And then similarly, Jamie, like in the books, Jamie leaves Cersei super early, like pretty, mm-hmm. you know, like, and like goes over lands, like breaks up with her for good. I think, you know, who knows, but like, and he's done with her. He never goes to Dorne. He doesn't like hang around her as she gets like increasingly unhinged season after season. And like what that did is it, it really like, um, stymies Jamie's arc. You know what I mean? Because like he was just like orbiting Cersei, um, instead of like on the road to independence, which is what is started when he leaves her and goes on the road with Brienne and stuff like that. It's like him breaking free from her. And so they just like basically put these two characters on hold because they, they cut their plot out and they're both great. Like Gwendolyn Christie's great. Nicola Coaster Waldo's great. They did like, I think the very best is what they were given, but it really feels like their narrative. They pressed pause since like season four and now they're back you know, on their arc, which includes each other. And I don't mean that just as like a moony eyed, like shipper or whatever. Like it just, it, it matters that they're together for their mutual character enrichment. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. I think you're right that they, you know, they were out in the, at sea a bit. Um, but whatever sort of momentum they lost or whatever sort of prominence in the kind of viewers imagination i feel like they've gained it back really quickly which is you know which is a testament to good good writing and, and perform you know acting awesome okay thank you for letting me monologue about that the last thing that i wanted to talk about before we uh we hop over to our interview is uh the sansa and theon stuff which like i i knew that theon was coming back to winterfell I, for some reason, expected his return to be so tied up with Bran and all the wrongs that he did to Bran that I didn't even have the Sansa thing on my radar, even though, of course, like, they had this huge bonding storyline in season five uh, and the beginning of season six. Uh, I was very taken by surprise by how much it mattered to me that these two have this connection in this episode. Uh, what did you think of the Sansa and Theon stuff? I mean, I thought it was nice. I thought, in some senses, I didn't know if I fully bought the big hug, you know? Um, but no, it was nice. And like, I, I, you know, they're like OG characters. And, and, and so to see them sort of find one another, I think is, is good. And, and, and it feels right to some extent. Um, but I guess I, if this episode was kind of setting up various like pairings where one is going to die next week, um, this felt maybe a little bit manipulative sort of somehow. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I'm so like pro Sansa and weirdly pro Theon that like any sort of criticism of their little mini arc in this season, uh, I'm sort of immune to. Yeah. I mean, like to be honest, they had, I mean, like said basically he said basically one sentence her and then the rest is like looks and montage you know what i mean right um so they didn't like you know overplay it i think it just um i re i went ahead and rewatched their um their goodbye scene 
after this episode again, uh, which is in uh, season six when he decides to go back to the Iron Islands. And it's one of my favorite, you know, it comes like after Brienne has like sworn fealty to Sansa right in the snow. And it's this like big emotional thing. That scene has always been great. And is of course mirrored in this episode, but like what always got me was Sansa saying goodbye to Theon because Sophie Turner does this, like one of her best pieces of acting because Theon's like, you know, basically implying that he's going to leave. And she, she does this like weird, like half cry, breath caught in her throat thing where she's like you're not coming with us but it's more subtle than that because i'm not an actress so like you know it's better than what i just did um but like um and then she hugs him and she gives him this teary goodbye and it's just sort of like sansa has sort of like latched onto him in a way that um you know the show didn't have a spend a lot of time with but like feels right to me and so her there was a lot going on with Sansa in this episode that like I don't really like the idea that like you know you women should smile more women should be softer and more emotional for us to be on their side but there was a lot of stuff happening in this episode with Sansa that like made me feel happier about being her side when she was icier and more austere in terms of like um when Bran goes up to testify for Jamie and I think you really see Sansa's face like really soften in a way that feels meaningful. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know, just all the notes that, that she's playing and, and the fact that Sansa chose to share her last meal with Theon, I, for some reason, just like really, really hit me. Um, and it's yeah. all probably to make me care about Theon before he dies, but um, it worked. So, you know, when you can well, like that's... see yourself being manipulated and you just sort of like, let yourself be manipulated anyway. You know? Totally. I mean, and I also like, there are a lot of times where I'm like, oh, like that's manipulative or this is whatever. And it's like, well, Richard, what do you think like drama is? Like, like what do you sure. think like storytelling is? Like, sure. Yeah. Like, it's partly the job of the people telling the story to like get you to care. Like that's not, if it's that, if that's manipulative, then the whole thing is, you know? So I should maybe let my sort of, I don't know. It's not my critical eye exactly, but it's my sort of, you know, cynical eye kind of, I, I need to just like watch the show and watch things like this and just let them, let, let myself feel them more purely. Um, than I, I, than I maybe mean, do. that's not our job, right? <laughs> like, well, I don't know. It depends there, you know? Well, it's, yeah, it's like a funny thing because I am both watching this show, uh, you know, as a, a work assignment to an extent. I mean, it doesn't feel like an assignment to talk about the show with you, but like, you know what I mean? It, it's part of our job, but also I'm watching as a fan. So kind of, yeah. I, and you're experiencing a similar thing where like balancing those two things is, can sometimes be a tricky arithmetic where I'll get really into something and it's like, wait, no, 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 take a step back. What does this mean? You know, what do you really think about this? Um, so it's that kind of push and pull that's been kind of, uh, that's been funny to, to observe the past two, two weeks. Yeah. I'm trying to be both you know, is, yeah. is sort of the goal, I think, because I think if you get too emotionally detached from art, then you're not like, exp- you know, <laughs> then you're like brand and you're not experiencing it in a human way that people can relate to. And then if you get too swept up in your emotions or just like relax, enjoy it, then you're not providing the critical angle that some people like look for from us. So yeah, it's, it's always walking that line. Um, and with that, like unexpected examination of our own roles in the culture, <laughs> Richard. Are we about uh, to die? Oh God! <laughs> uh, is there anything else uh, you want to talk about before we before we go? 
you know, I'm nothing I want to talk about. I just want to make a plea that like maybe Brienne and Grey Worm could just be like, look, we we know what's about to happen. So like, <laughs> let's go sneak out the back and like, let, let the bad stuff happen to other people. Cause I don't know. I'm going to be really sad if what I think is going to happen happens. Yeah. I think like, I think, you know, what I would expect from a show like Game of Thrones, which, uh, wants to surprise us and devastate us is like, some of the things we happen are going to happen. And yeah. then I think on the other hand, we're going to be surprised by some of the people surviving. Does that make sense? Like, totally. I don't think they're going to hit every single person that we're like, oop, that person's going to die, but they're going to hit some and we're going to be like, ugh, ugh, ugh. All right. Um, well, with on that, on all those bummer sounds that I just made, uh, let us go to our interview with Brad Cogman. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. Welcome back for the third time. I think you're now officially the third co-host of Still Watching, Brian Cogman. Oh wow, that's exciting! <laughs> I know what a. I'm like one of those one of those frequent Carson guests. Yeah. for all you kids out there that get that that get that. I reference. get it. I get it. Uh, what a glow up for you! Yeah, <laughs> I'm like I'm like uh, Charles Nelson Riley. Oh, wow, I'm really going. Are you the, yeah, anyway. you like the center square or something like that. Um, anyway, <laughs> there it is. Yeah, yeah, I'm the center square. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, uh, Brian Coffin, congratulations on writing one of my favorite episodes of Game of Thrones again. Um, y- yay. yay. Thank you, Thank you. <laughs> I've heard you, you told me a couple times sort of before it aired and then you said it officially in Entertainment Weekly. So I think I can say it on air that you consider this a love letter to the characters. Can you talk about what that means for yeah. you? Yeah. It, it, yeah, it, it really was. It was, um, when we, when we conceived the uh, episode in the room, just the idea that we would really take a ta- take the time to 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 sit with all of these characters in Winterfell the night before the battle, um, when that sort of concept came up, uh, I was delighted um, and eager to write it and and ask the guys if I could write it um, because uh, for 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 lots of reasons, but that that's the main one. It just felt like it was a chance for me. Who, who has had these characters sort of living in my heart for the last 10 years, in some cases, um, a chance for me to really say goodbye to them and, and uh, revisit some of the threads and, and arcs and uh, kind of explore just who, just explore and take stock of where they all are 
uh, and in a, in a weird way, I sort of took stock of where I was, you know, and, 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 and so it was a lovely, it was a lovely experience. It was the hardest experience. It was the hardest script by far of the 11 that I've had to write without question. And the worst first draft I ever turned in. <laughs> um, it was the worst first draft I ever turned in. Uh, so, and I think, well, because I was just, I was terrified of it. The episode sort of terrified me. I, because for practical reasons, it terrified me because it's not a story or a plot driven episode necessarily. There's some plot stuff, obviously. You've got the rather large bombshell that John hits Danny with at the end of the episode. You've got, you know, Jamie arriving and, uh, and stuff with Sansa and Danny and, 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 and all of that. So, so, so there's certainly some story, but it's essentially, though, it's, it's, it's the calm before the storm that you normally devote about 20 minutes to in a, in a battle episode. We gave ourselves an hour. So I was, it was just sort of nerve wracking to conceive scenes that weren't necessarily about a character getting from point A to point B. It was more about reflection and, um, and, and, re, and, and in some cases reunion. And so I was nervous about that just in general. And then what I ended up doing that first draft. So basically when I turn in a draft, the guys, the way they edit is they just, the way they give notes is they just return the final draft document in, and they've just written in, in red in within the body of the document. And I got, and I kind of knew, even when I turned it in, I thought, I don't feel great about this, but I didn't really know why. And sure enough, (laughs) Sure enough, when I got it back, the document was a sea of red. It was just yeah, no. like, it was, and, and, but so basically, they they were right. Um, the problem was that the first draft of the episode was a Wikipedia page. Mm-hmm. Essentially, it was the characters recapping the show for each right. other. Right. <laughs> um, which and you know the the impulse to write the scene came from a a place of truth because if you haven't seen somebody in ten years then not 10 years in this case. And if you haven't named somebody in two years, you're going to let them know what you've been up to, but that doesn't make for particularly compelling drama. And so, um, so it was a lot of that. It was a lot of, you know, even, even that first scene with Jamie, you know, I had Brienne's, Brienne's original, the original draft of Brienne's speech was essentially her relating here, the entire storyline. <laughs> um, and in great detail. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, I, listen, there's, Gwen could have made it watchable, but, um, they, uh, they encouraged me to find different ways. In. So, uh, and, and sure there's a fair amount of, of information that has to be conveyed between characters anyway. And that certainly is there, but, um, in almost every case, it was just about paring it down to the sort of core emotional state. And in some cases, in the case of the Shireen scene, um, it's a scene about Shireen where Shireen's never mentioned. I loved that and, aspect of it. Oh, good. And I hope that, I hope it read, I, I wasn't sure. I, I said, I hope people get it. And if they don't get it, it works as a scene anyway. But, um, and I loved how Ramin, I feel like Ramin worked in Shireen's song in the score during the he scene. Which, it's always some, oh, always that, I, that was a lovely yeah, yeah, surprise. Yeah. yeah. Which I, which I wrote. So that was a lovely surprise. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but that scene is a perfect example. The first draft had a scene where Davos and Gilly, through a lot of really clunky screenwriting contrivance, somehow managed to, dis- to figure out and discuss that they both used to be illiterate and were both taught to read by the same girl. <laughs> and 
it was a perfectly fine scene, but the scene that we ended up coming up with and ended up resulting is to me much more powerful because it is a scene about this character that meant a great deal to them. And neither of them knows. They, they're not aware of each other's connection to that right. child and that the connection in the case of the literacy is specific. And I think there's something really beautiful about that because there are threads that connect all of us that we will go our entire lives in many cases, not knowing those connections. And so I thought there was something really beautiful about where the scene ended up. Um, uh, and ultimately I think more effective. Another, another example is, um, and this one hit very close to home. Uh, and this was, a, this was, a, this was actually a scene I never even put in the first draft. No one ever read it but me. I labored for about two weeks on a Sion Sansa scene that was essentially them talking about everything <laughs> and everything that happened to them and Ramsey and all of it. And I didn't even end up turning it in. I, cause I, 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 I just thought, you know what? But we, we, we all were there. We all know what happened. They know what happened. They're the only people in the world. The two of them that knows the extent of the abuse that happened to the other. And Sophie and Alfie are the kind of actors where you only you only need four seconds of them sharing a meal together and that embrace to get the weight of their connection and to be reminded of what they endured and how they've both come through it. Um, and trying to contrive a scene where they process it in very knowing dialogue just felt like it felt like a scene I was writing for the wrong reasons, if that makes sense. Um, so I and I so I, I I ended up never even turning that one in. I, I I and and I and I don't regret it because I actually I absolutely love um, uh, the moments that they have in the episode. Um, yeah, I mean, so yeah, so that's that's an example. Me too, and and um, I there's so much in this episode that I love that is sort of unspoken but shared memory, and there is this theme yeah. throughout the episode. You know, like the crux of at the middle of this episode, right, is. Um, you know, Bran baldly stating what the Night King's mission is and, and like us being like, Oh, oh okay, yeah. Here it yeah. Is. Um, you know, but Sam then has this beautiful commentary about like what it means to be a human and like memory makes us human and we are what we remember yeah. and that sort of stuff. And so the fact that you have these things like this shared Davos Gilly memory that they don't even speak, but exists as like sort of the fabric of, of the story or this shared Theon right. Sansa memory that they don't have to talk about, but we know is there. I mean, it all just seems of this larger piece. Yeah, it really ended up being, that, that, and that's what the episode was. And that's why I was really delighted that we were, that we took the time to do it. Um, I think there was an expectation that we were just going to hit the ground running with spectacle right away. And, um, and so I, I was very pleased to be able to, to luxuriate in, in these, in these characters. Um, and, 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 and also to take advantage of the sort of, there is something kind of funny and, and random about the assortment that has ended up together. And that was what that drinking scene really was about was this sort of misfit, group um some of whom have past relationships and some who only know each other a little bit and many of whom have fought each other and 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 all of that kind of doesn't matter because the end is coming and they 
it was important to me to show these characters embracing their humanity and spending their last night or what they, many of them believe could be their last night in the world, um, with, in, 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 in grace, you know, um, that, that was, that was the key to that whole sequence. Um, and it was, it was, it was, that was a joy to write. That was maybe my favorite thing I've ever written on the show. Um, that, that sort of, that trio of scenes that builds up, up to the song. Well, yeah. So I can tell from our own listenership numbers that there were a lot of people listening now who were not with us on our preseason, uh, journey to, uh, the final season oh, of Game sure. of Thrones. And so they didn't get to hear you talking about Kiss by Fire, which is one of my favorite episodes, but it seems like, that episode you wrote from back in season three is so much a companion to this episode in that there's like, you know, Shireen yeah. is introduced there. We get a Shireen call out here. You've got Beric and the Hound and Arya and Gendry in that episode. You've yes. got Beric and the Hound and Arya and Gendry in this. And then of course, like the, the Jamie and Bran bathtub scene, which is just like one of my favorite things that's ever happened on Game of Thrones. And so, you know, is there, is there yeah. a conscious effort? to parallel that episode or um is this just coincidentally where we wound up at the end of it all i don't know how conscious it was i mean we we when we were in the room we certainly had rough ideas of things that we wanted to happen in the episode in terms of encounters and obviously the knighthood and all of that but then the guys gave me a lot of freedom to shape it myself i i I shaped it in the outline in its outline form in its infancy which isn't always the case sometimes i'll i will have written an episode that David or Dan or Dave or Vanessa back in the day actually broke the back of the structure and then I would be assigned the script. But there are one or two where I was with it sort of the whole time. And um, so maybe just by virtue of the fact that it was me and and I gravitate to a lot of these characters that that, that just sort of happened. I don't, I don't know. Because it also calls back, you know, as per the conversation a minute ago, uh, it calls back to Theon and Sansa of which, uh, you know, I, I wrote, I wrote the wedding night episode and um uh, so, and a lot of Sansa stuff. So that, that was, that threads through the, the Grey Worm Masande stuff. You know, I've written a lot of their key scenes. So, um, over the years. So it, in some ways it, and even Jamie and, and, uh, Jamie and Tyrion, I, I, I had a lot of their, uh, season four kind of jail cell, um, stuff where we really found, I think their relationship as, as brothers, because you only, you only really saw them as brothers for the first couple episodes of the series and then they were separated. So season four was when we really explored why they have the connection they have as brothers and why they have this deep love for each other. So even just having that little bit about um, them reflecting on, on their, uh, the perils of self betterment. um, (laughs) Even that was sort of a callback to stuff that I had explored earlier or been able to, you know, be the credited writer who explored. We obviously all did it together, but um, so I don't know. I, I, it was it was uh, that was that was the opportunity, I guess, that 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 was afforded me in, in being assigned it. Um, but uh, it was, and then yeah, and certainly Sutini and Brienne. I mean, and I've talked about this. Like, uh, I really love those characters. Jamie is one of my favorites. Brienne is as well. Um, Gwen and Nikolai, I'm really fond of as people and as performers. So um, I was. Uh, it's funny the scene for me, and I, and the knighthood scene is the main reason I. I had to write the episode, right. obviously. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, I also really love the moment where I remember um, kind of happening upon this as I was writing it and, and being very moved even in the in the writing of it, just the idea of 
Jamie asking if he could serve under oh, her command. Um, that's a big, that's, that's as big a moment in many ways. <clears throat> He's never served under anyone, um, you know, uh, willingly. I mean, he served under whoever his Lord commander was, as a, you know what I mean? But, but this is different. Um, so that was a powerful thing to, uh, and, and it was interesting, all, all of these moments, and this is very clear, and the guys really made this very clear in the writer's room, is they wanted these moments to sort of happen organically and not, like, she's not knighted on a hill by him with music soaring and the sun rising and cloaks billowing in the right, wind. Right, right, yeah. Um, the guy, you know, the guys were very adamant, you know, we, we knew we knew that we were going to have her, knight, her knighted by Jamie, but... Uh, any any staging of the scene in that way they really pushed against and so we came up together with this idea that it would just happen almost accidentally and turn into something solemn and ceremonial you know almost almost without almost before anyone realizes what's happening and there's a lovely little take actually and this is david nutter david nutter th- those scenes take so long to do because david nutter shoots so much coverage <laughs> And it's so worth it once yeah. it's so worth it once you get in the editing room because he's got so many looks to use um, from the different actors. And there's one beautiful moment that Peter has where you see Tyrion realize, "Oh my God, this is important. What's about to happen here?" Uh, and I'm going to stand up and watch yeah. because, like, the, the the sort of historian and and pe- lover of people and culture and 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 tradition in Tyrion is sort of stirred there because he doesn't know Brienne. He has no real connection there. He knows that she's the woman that saved his brother's life and vice versa. And he understands the connection that Jamie has with her, but he doesn't really know her. Um, and he's re- sort of swept up in that moment as well. But then you get these looks from pod, these wonderful things that uh, uh, David cuts to these amazing little uh, moments. Uh, like when she looks at him and he sort of nods, he understands before she does that this is a, a the real deal and this is important. It felt like, it um, felt like he was giving her you know, permission to like want this. Like it's okay, you yeah, can do this. It's absolutely, what yeah. it was. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay that you yeah. wanted this, and it's okay, you know, to be, and 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 that's lovely. And even and when and when he and then again, this is all in the editing and the beautiful post production work. But when she, when he says, "In the name of the mother, I charge you to protect the innocent," it cuts to pause. Yeah. Um, which is lovely. So I don't know. I, I think there's, uh, and that's all, you know, that's another, I mean, he, he couldn't have been the more perfect director to be paired with the script because uh, the actors feel, feel very safe with him and feel very um, supported. And, and he, he creates wonderful working environment and, and, and we really, really takes the time and to, to hone in on all these little details. And so, uh, and it was one of the first episodes we shot in the shooting schedule. So um, it was, uh, and that sequence, I believe, we shot pretty much in sequence too, which helped. Uh, I, I was talking to to Gwendolyn recently about you, and she said this. Uh, mm. She said, uh, "I felt Brian had a real understanding of the trials the character had to overcome in life in order to achieve a sense of self worth, and how far time sometimes." We have to travel to move the narrative society has subscribed to us. I think he helped establish the universal nature of the character in the writing with that knowledge. Um, so I wanted to, oh, yeah. Wow. So I wanted, I wanted to talk to you about like what Brienne means and also not in a, not in a purient way. I, I, I hope in the best way possible. I interpret this scene as like a, a sex scene between Jamie and Brand, not in like a, a 
it's just the, the connection is so strong. The, the fact that they forget anyone else is there in the room with them and the fact that their connection has been so, well, intense, yeah, there's, you know, there's great love there. I mean, there's, there's just, it's, there's just great love. Um, and, uh, and I think this episode is about them finally acknowledging if not to each other than to themselves, that there is love there, you know, yeah. however you want to define that term. I, I don't leave up to the viewer, sure. but, um, but there's a, there's a letting down of, of walls, you know, yeah. and Jamie is funnily the one who does it first, you know? Um, well, no, I guess she does it first cause she, she vouches for him, but that's, you know, that's something that is also part of her, you know, chivalrous nature. Um, but, I think I think there's just little it's a chipping away that happens kind of through, over the course of the episode and then and then yeah it culminates in that moment. Um, that's an amazing thing that Quinn said. I I I don't know. I, I I've talked about this. I, I um I've always gravitated on the show to the either either kind of messy, flawed, complicated. I mean everybody's messy and flawed and complicated on the show, but the ones that the ones that get pulled back and forth and like Jamie or Sansa. Uh, or Theon, and then, but also the ones that are the truly vulnerable um, characters that aren't given much of a chance in life that or you wouldn't you wouldn't think would have much of a chance in life that uh, that rise up, uh, and certainly Brienne is one of them. Sam is another character like that. Um, so yeah, it was important to me to be able to 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 get in get in the get in the muck with the scene and 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 work it out. Um, I, yeah, yeah, I often find that I'm surprised by whatever the quote unquote internet chatter is around an episode. Cause I like, I watch it with my, I'm, I'm too far deep into this show perspective. And then I'm like, Oh, this is, this is what sure. everyone wants to talk about. And for some reason, everyone wants to talk about, um, the Ariane Gendry sex scene this morning. And there are a lot of opinions on oh. it. <laughs> Um, about like Arya's age or Maisie's age or, or whether you're comfortable seeing a girl that you watch grow up, like become a sexual being. And something I said to Richard earlier on this episode was like, I hope none of the, I hope none of those people ever have kids. I know. I'm I mean, like, your, happens, your, da- <laughs> your daughter will become a sexual being eventually. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah. So, it's, it's, I'm just wondering if you could talk about this, uh, this scene and sort of like what you, what sure. you guys wanted from it. Yeah, well, we wanted, I mean, she's a human being. And I think what's so delightful about, about um, Arya's journey this season, and, and, and it's obviously not, not over yet, but in terms of this episode, you know, she's, she's been a, she's been so focused on one thing for so long, which is vengeance and, and, and almost forgetting herself and forgetting what it is to be a human. I mean, that was very much what, the time at the faceless man was about erasing humanity. And this, this is her. And also facing with what she think might be her eminent demise. It's like, I'm going to, I want to be a human being. I want to be a young woman. I want to experience this stuff and I want to experience it on my terms. And she drives the scene. That was what was exciting for me about writing it. And, 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 and I think for Maisie is that it's, she drives that scene. It is a, and yeah, is more than happy to follow and go along with it. But it's uh, it's all it's on that's on her terms. Um, but at the same time, and I, I this is something I very specifically put in the script, and I thought David shot it beautifully. The shot is gorgeous. Um, the f- same time he sees those scars, yeah. you know, he has that moment where he thinks, "Oh wow, 
what's happened here? What have, you know, what, what, uh, this is, he's, he, this is not the person that he knew. And, and in many ways that was what's been attractive about her here because she has changed, but there's that darkness too. But, um, you know, she's a young woman. She's a teenager. I mean, uh, I, you know, obviously the passage of time is murky on the show for lots of reasons. Um, I mean, Tom and grew up really fast from what she's been at her, so trying to figure out the exact age of what Arya is, I think is foolhardy, but I mean, look, I mean, uh, <laughs> teenagers have sex, guys. I hate, to, <laughs> hate to break it to you. It's a fun fact. So, yeah. uh, and, uh, you know, and and the actress is 22, but I mean, even it's like, this is, this is, this is human behavior. Um, and, and faced with, that was the thing when we were plotting out the episode, we were and talking about, it, it's like, what would these people on the last night of their, you know, how do you spend what you think might be the last night on earth? And, uh, that's certainly a, a valid option for your last night on earth. So, um, I think it's a beautiful scene. I think it's a lot of fun and, um, and, beautifully played by the two of them and and you know yeah you when you first started watching the show she was a kid but she's not a kid anymore so okay well to that end i i know that (laughs) i know that you've cautioned me elsewhere to not like or or caution people to maybe not get too um too in the weeds in terms of i don't know symbolism and metaphysical kind of lost-esque analysis of the show but i'm working on this uh thesis so indulge me if you will that um Sure. That Winterfell represents this sort of way station, this sort of like um, reckoning of this, as you said, like sort of access to grace right before mm. death. Like if death is represented by the Night King and they're headed to death, then this is like Winterfell becomes this place where all the like sins and the virtues are, are weighed and balanced and, and sort of attempt to be like righted um and and wow. also this idea that like huh. when the starks come home and i'm talking about john and theon and sansa and aria um and bran when they come home they start to access more of their starkishness their humanity because like these walls mm-hmm. that you were talking about these walls that they've thrown up they can let them down a bit when they're inside the walls of Winterfell mm-hmm. and around each other. Do you know what I mean? So like, am I, I think that's, crazy? That's, or? A, that's a beautiful, that, no, I think that's a beautiful analysis. I, I won't pretend that that was something that we <laughs> intended stated out loud. Sure. Do you know what I mean? That's just, that's just, well, it's not, that's not how the guys yeah. write. Um, uh, which is frankly why I think they're good writers. I think, uh, I, you know, um, I, there are plenty of good writers that pick up that, that come up with a theme, first and then but i think i think the guys it's really more acting on instinct and just following what the characters will do and 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 letting the story take its natural course so yes i have, i think that's all true i think there is definitely a discussion of the idea that there is a cyclical nature and that we started at winterfell and wait and we're gonna and we're gonna you know begin the end game at winterfell but um so that's i certainly that was a conscious choice obviously but uh but uh, I love that actually. I, I, I think subconsciously that that's, I'm sure that's what, that's what we were doing because it's, it's true. Uh, um, when the three Stark siblings are back together in their home, there is a, uh, there is a, a change. And, and the fact that these characters that have no business being in Winterfell are, are, are growing and changing within Winterfell 
And because Winterfell and the and and I mean, the central the central sort of inciting incident of the show was the this family from this good honest place, yeah. this place that is if King's Landing is a nest of vipers, Winterfell is 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 pure is pure, you know, um, which is why when Winterfell was perverted by those fuckers. Bolton, the Boltons over those seasons, it hurt. And, and the whole idea of, of putting Sansa into that storyline, that was the idea behind it, was that, we, that something good is being nightmarishly perverted. Right. And we wanted to have one of the actual Starks in there experiencing that, as horrific as it was to experience for the audience. That was the impetus behind that plot line. And so, yes, it speaks to that. It's, it's, that, it's that this is where it all started, and, and this is where the first men were and this is where even the mythology of the whole show in some ways began is the north and um and all these characters that uh you know like Tyrion and Tyrion and Jamie like Tyrion keeps bringing it up like it's hilarious that we're at Winterfell because we don't belong here um but they do you know um everyone that is there does belong there i think that was sort of the, that was another point of the drinking scene is that is that everything everything that's happened it's brought everybody here and 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 what happens from what happens from here on out, who knows? But we're here together tonight, and and that's why I love I love the lyric. I I, don't, I think it might have been Dan who 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 uh, who uh, finished the lyrics for Jenny of Oldstones. I wrote in my draft lyrics forthcoming, fully <laughs> intending to write the lyrics, and then I get my notes back, and he'd written the damn lyrics. Oh. I think he wanted the ass cap. I think he wanted the ass cap residuals. <laughs> but because um, I wrote the Shereen song lyrics and I get a nice little check every once oh, in a while. It's lovely. But um uh, yeah, I know Bummer, right? And of course the machine covers it. But it but it, but it was great. His lyrics were beautiful and, and I and I think the never wanting to leave refrain yeah. it, you know, that is I love that in 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 how it relates to, to that scene. It's and, and you know Tyrion not wanting to split up. He wants that kind of fellowship maybe, you know, one last time, do you know? Um and then the heartbreak of the whole episode is that it ends with, with, with you know, these two characters who had come together and had finally found some, some um, peace together and, and it being, being, you know, possibly ripped apart by this information John, John that, and Danny. that John yeah. has to share yeah. with her. Uh, yeah, you know, I think it ends on this sort of melancholic note um, that is appropriate as well, because it, it is Game of Thrones. Um, and uh, and that's a scene that that was the very that was a very tough scene to write. And the guys had a big hand. I mean, they always have a big hand in all the episodes and all the writing. But um, that was a scene that was hard for me to crack. That they really figured out a lot of um, by the end. Um, because again, it's information that we that we the audience knows. Have. Yeah. The yeah. week before we saw someone. Yeah, and the week before we saw the same information conveyed <laughs> to John. So how do you make the scene feel different? How do you make uh, and my original draft, same thing. My original draft had them really having it out, talking all about it, and all the ramifications. And uh, again, it's distilling it to the to the simple moments um, and the the rather um, upsetting moment where, at the end, where the first thing she says is, "That means you have a claim to the throne." And then you see the look on John's face at hearing that, and then that horn blows. That's all you need, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and if I've learned anything, if I've learned, I've learned so much, but if I've learned anything from the guys over the years, it's the idea of of, of brevity, the idea of, of 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 surgically finding just the key beats and and weeding out the the, the extraneous stuff. And um, anyway, so that so that that was that was 
that, that turned out really well. I think the whole episode turned out well. I'm really very pleased with it. I think it's a, uh, it's a nice one to, it's a nice one to end this decade journey with. Um, cause it's, it's, it feels like the kind of episode that I was good at writing. Um, yeah. so, and I enjoyed writing most, you know, can I, can I ask you nice. like three super fast questions before you go? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Of course. Um, yeah. Number one, are we supposed to, like, my hope is that we're supposed to just believe what Bran says about the Night King, about his mission, about the Three-Eyed Raven, about everything. Like, what Bran is mm-hmm. saying is true, right? Well, <laughs> I don't know. I don't, uh, you know, Bran, Bran has said what he has said. That's uh, all I can really, I thought all I right. say. <laughs> How annoying. All right. Um, and then, uh, I'm, I'm sure this answer is going to be equally annoying. What... Uh, do you think Bran and Tyrion talked about when the camera cut away from them? Oh, interesting. Uh, I well, I know what they talked about, but probably probably should uh, abstain. I mean, you know, he wanted Tyrion wanted to hear. I think he wanted to hear more about his journey. I think he finds him intriguing, and and uh, and I wanted to. It's it's basically what you what you what 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 you. Uh, uh, it's, it's basically what it says. I'd like to hear more. I'd like to hear more about everything that happens, you know? Um, so, so there's nothing like they had a, they had a good there's talk. crazy that happened <laughs> off camera that we're going to like cut back to later. And it's like, actually Brand told me this or anything like that. That's not Game of Thrones style anyway. I, I don't, I don't uh, know. I don't know. They've, they've still got four episodes. Irritating. To watch. <laughs> All right. Here's my last question for you. Um, this one will be easier. Was that a direct, West Side Story, Stephen Sondheim reference when Grey Worm tells Missande he'll take her there to the Isle of Noth. Oh, oh, wow! You mean like from like, like somewhere yeah, or something? Uh-huh. Or yeah. Oh, hold my hand, I'll take you there. Oh, that's amazing. I wish I could say yes, but no. Again, probably subconscious. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's probably a lot of subconscious Sondheim stuff. If we're being right. honest, throughout. I mean, if I'm really. Uh, uh, no, no. Although I did, I did do a subconscious, uh, uh, and I didn't mean to do this. I did steal a line from a Christmas story and I didn't realize it until this past Christmas when I was watching a Christmas story and I realized I stole the line. What line, line did you steal? <laughs> you know what no. it is? It's when, uh, Tyrion says, you want some of this taste? It's not bad. It's not good either. And then I watched a Christmas, I watched a Christmas story, which I've seen thousands of times. And at the end of the movie, uh, he's staring at the and the dad is drinking some wine with his after they've opened the presents and he goes, Hmm, pretty good wine. Or see this had this wine. It's not bad. It's not good either. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, Oh no, oh, no. it's in my head. <laughs> I cribbed from a Christmas story. I was so proud of that line. <laughs> That's amazing. But, you know, it's fine. It's not the only time someone could say that in life. So I think we're okay. Well, he's, but, he's, um, yeah. so yeah, uh, but no, not a, not a, not a conscious, uh, uh, choice to, uh, pay homage to West Side Story, but I'll take it. For Why sure. not? Let's let's make them the Romeo and Juliet of Winterfell. All right. Um, well, thank you so much for your time for your work on the show. It was amazing. I love this episode. Well, thanks. Thanks for talking. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm glad you enjoyed it. it for our discussion of season eight episode two a night of the seven kingdoms which is also called 
Game of Thrones 69 for a while, because it's the 69th episode mm-hmm. before they released what the title was, and I am deeply mature. Um, anyway, Richard, where can people find you before next week? I don't know, skulking around a blacksmith shop trying to find my own Gendry or something? <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, beyond that, they can find me uh, on Twitter at Rylaws and on VF.com. Joanna, where will you be until the big battle? Oh, um, you'll find me hiding in the crypts, which are absolutely safe. Definitely fine. There's not a lot of dead bodies down there that could be resurrected by the Night King at any moment or anything like that. It'll be fine. I'll be there with Gilly and all the babies and stuff like that. Yeah, we should maybe, we should have maybe talked about that. Like, <laughs> they're like, oh, guys, you know what he can do, right? Did you think, like, there's a possibility that Rickon would come back as a zombie? Somebody I saw on Twitter or something, which would be crazy. Um, but most uh, of the, most of the, yeah, <laughs> welcome to the PS of this episode. Most of the, uh, Bodies in the Witchfell crypts are just bones. Um, and so that feels, you know, a bunch of people keep going like, what about the, you know, resurrection of Ned Stark, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, listen, they cut Ned's head off and then they like boiled his bones. So it's just a skeleton with no head. And that, do you know how emotionally unsatisfying it's going to be to watch some sort of like s- stupid CG skeleton chasing like Arya through the crypts or something like that without a head and we're like oop that one's Ned it's got no head like that'll be <laughs> stupid looking you know now I want to see that <laughs> whereas I mean maybe little fingers down there if they forgot to burn him may- they know that they didn't burn Rickon Rickon is down there because after the battle of the bastards um John was just like put him in the crypts so you know he's like a cup he's been down there a couple years I guess or months I don't know how time works and in Game of Thrones, but, uh, you know, uh, Rickon's been down there for the least amount of time. So he's still got some meat on those Starkish bones. Um, but yeah, some, uh, this, this theory that the Night King will raise the, the Kings of Winterfell, the Kings of Winter, uh, has been a theory. I just think that in practicality, it will look silly if a bunch of skeletons are chasing our heroes. That being said, do I believe that we will see uh, undead versions of a lot of characters we like and know? Yes, because here's the fun idea of this particular battle episode of Game of Thrones. Every one of our faves that dies could be resurrected and turned into the enemy. And then maybe we have to watch them die again, this time killed by someone they love. This is the calculus that I've been playing all preseason. Mm-hmm. And I was, is that, I don't know. I can't remember if we talked about this on this show, but like, Pick your, like Richard right now, pick a character that you like don't want to see die. Anyone? I mean, Brienne. Okay, Brienne. All right. So the calculus is this. So you don't want Brienne to die. Let's say she dies and let's pick the most, like the saddest way she could die. Dies defending Jamie. Dies defending Pod. One of those two. She dies. She gets resurrected by the Night King. Let's say. So she's an an undead Brienne. That's heartbreaking in and of itself because Mm -hmm. like, you know, blah, blah. And then either Jamie or Pod has to kill it. Like, do the math on who is the saddest person, you know, living person, to then have to kill her. So that's just something. That's a that's a thought experiment I've been playing. Pick a pick a fave, think about them dying, and then think about who it will uh, hurt you the most to watch have to like stab them through the eye. And that's our cheery little prompt <laughs> for you to think about before next week. This episode was edited and produced by Dave Gonzalez, and we will see you next time. 
The Rendezvous Vogue is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz, um, who should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. Yeah, we support that. Very <laughs> <laughs> <Right> nice. <laughs> Nikki, yes, it's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K, and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's a walk. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> <laughs>